you want to keep that open, uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll look at it together. Dear God, we do thank you for these words of yours and we ask that you'll be working in our hearts now to hear them, understand them. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in um, 55 BC, Julius Caesar sent his Roman legions to attack Britain and invade uh, Britain. And sure enough, they did. They landed on the shores of Britain and he wanted them to make sure that they knew that this was a must-win situation. And so he turned around and told them to look back over the cliffs of Dover. And what did they see behind them? The boats were burning. I'm not sure those are Roman boats. They look like they have English flag or Dutch flags or something, but it was a picture of boats burning. That'll do. Yeah, anyway. Um, best picture I could find. Let's move on for it. Uh, but so the soldiers turned around. They saw all the ships that had transported them to Britain across the channel were being burned. And they realized, well, there's no way back. The only way for us to live is to conquer Britain. And sure enough, they did. Forth they went and they conquered Britain and they thought Scotland was too cold, so they built a wall and stopped there. And that was the end of it. Um, but it's one way to engender commitment, isn't it, amongst uh, your troops to say to them, go forth and conquer because you can't go back. You'll be in big trouble if you try and go back. Uh, now, I don't know uh, where you sit in terms of thinking about going to war. Probably not something that crosses your mind very often. But we often call the world of sport the modern-day amphitheater of war, um, which is a bit... Uh, over-exaggerating the importance of sport, I think, as a sport lover, I can say that. But it's also maybe under-representing uh, what war is really like. Uh, however, uh, we do think about sport, but I, I don't think there's many situations where you could burn the boats in, a sporting, in the sporting arena. For example, you take the team to the arena, and they get off to play the basketball or whatever, and you say, look around, and the bus is burning. You're like, you can't go home unless you win. And they're like, what do you mean? We'll just get a cab. It's not really the same, is it? Um, However, there have been attempts to try and um, make sportsmen more committed to their cause by their coaches and things like that. Sometimes it just doesn't seem like they're putting in, though. Uh, There's a basketball player called Tony Parker. He's retired now. He was one of the great players, uh, won a number of championships. And uh, this is Tony Parker attempting a free throw. I'm not sure Tony Parker's commitment to the cause is there. Does anyone know where the ball should go when he shoots it? In the hoop. Do you think, like, he's... Has anyone played basketball before? <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever shot a free throw that's gone that short in my life. Right? He's not that... Surely he's not committed to the cause, is he? if, he's, if he's failing there. But that, he's, not, he's far from the worst example um, of a uh, basketball player I've seen. Uh, there's a, another bloke plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. And, well, he showed his commitment to the cause during one game. He was captured. I'm not sure what he's doing, having a snooze on the bench? That's where the players, after they call a timeout, get to go and sit down. And he's on the players' bench having a nap while the game is in progress. Probably not the greatest look for a basketball player either. And, of course, there's been memes about this guy. Chris Kamen is his name. I had a few more that I wanted to show you, but I couldn't actually get the moving picture to work, so I couldn't do that, unfortunately. There was one... um, Ooh, there was one of a... Ooh, does anyone know how to blank the screen? Nope. Does anyone know how to insert a slide that has the uh, OAC logo in between this one and the next one? So there's a, because um, otherwise we'll be looking at this guy for quite some time. Um, <laughs> and they'll be looking at it here and I'll, hang on, why are people lying down on the pews? <laughs> Same thing. Um, there's a, 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 a Chinese, the Chinese have a, a, um, a Olympic, not Olympic Games, an Olympic trial and a college games. And their equivalent of the college games was being held. And there's a hurdler. You may or may not have seen the clip of this. It's quite, it's worth um, looking it up. He's a hurdler and he 
starts the race and he jumps to the first hurdle and he nicks it and it falls down. And he jumps the second one and he nicks it and falls down. And then he just starts running and every hurdle in his way just throws the wood bit over his head. Bang, bang. But by about the fifth one or the sixth one, he's, he's in front by some way and he loses his balance as he tries to knock it over and gets caught up and falls into the other guy's lane. And then he gets up and starts running again and starts throwing that guy's hurdle. And this guy's caught up to him, by the, but it can't get past him. And so he wins the race. Um, but I'm not sure he was trying to hurdle too hard. It's, it's a clip worth watching. But again, I'm not 100% sure that that guy was committed to the cause of hurdling. He was, he was fast. But jumping wasn't his thing so much. Now, there's a contrast, isn't there, between the Romans who are told, you must go forth, and these guys who it's kind of like, oh, you know, we're sleeping on the bench during a professional game of basketball. Commitment levels there are fairly different. Now, today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're thinking a little bit about commitment levels, commitment to Christ in, um, in, in our lives and what that looks like. Is it something that we are forced to do? Does it matter if we're sleeping on the bench? Is there any middle ground there? What's going on? Uh, and we've been looking at 2 Corinthians for a little while. I keep saying to you that there's one point about 2 Corinthians that if you keep it in your mind, you'll get quite a lot out of it just as the Bible's read. What's that point? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Something about the Corinthians and their culture. I'm sure you're right, Emma. What was it? Yeah, they're all about getting ahead in life. They're, quite like Sydney Silas says, Tim. Yes, they're all about getting ahead in life. The difference between them and, and modern day Australians is probably quite slim, but they actually were proud of the fact that they were trying to be better than everyone else. We, Australians try to be better than everyone else, but we pretend we don't, right? That's, that's the only difference. They're like, they're proud of it. We're trying to get ahead and we're proud of it and we want to show off that we're trying to get ahead. Um, it, and it wasn't frowned on in Corinth, it was applauded. If you could get ahead, you were better. If you keep that in mind, as the passage is read each week, you'll get quite a bit out of it. You'll see so much that Paul is addressing here to the Corinthians. And last week we saw that it's tempting to give into fear and try and please other people, to try and give a good impression of ourselves to keep others happy. But we saw that because of Christ's love, we don't need to fear others. We can measure ourselves by God's assessment of us, by what he thinks. And we can see people through the lens of the good news of Jesus. And we can have that desire that Paul had to see people reconciled to Christ. Now, today it follows right on from that, and it deals with the idea of commitment. So he says in chapter 6, verse 1, have a look there. He says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Working together with him then. Who do you reckon the him is that Paul's working together with? No, there's not a yawn. Sorry, mate. Uh, Anyone else want to have a guess? Who's the him that Paul's working with? Just have a guess. Jesus. Jesus is very so close, Chris, but not quite. Uh, the other one, who? Holy Spirit. Oh, it's just God, the Father. Yep. Okay, good. <laughs> you had a one in three chance, and uh, Chris took that, reduced it to one in two. Karen stepped up, and then Benita finished the job off with a one in one chance of getting it right. Well done, Benita. Round of applause there. Uh, has anyone got some used cake anywhere that we could give Benita as a prize? Um, yes, there we are. There it is. It's still, let's pass that around. Um, okay, so <laughs> Paul's working together with God here. He's working together with God, um, and he's making his appeal to the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. See, back in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, he's saying he's an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through Paul, and the appeal is be reconciled to God because Christ gave his life. Put your faith and trust in him. And Paul's saying, this is serious stuff. It's not a matter of preference. 
It's not a matter of who thinks what is better. Paul is saying this is a very important, important truth to grasp. And he's making a difference, a distinction between his ministry and that of the, let's call them the impressive brigade. People who are in the church or have come into the church and said, our culture says be better. Let's be better. Let's make, let's make God better and let's be better ourselves. Now, it's a confronting reality because what he says here is that his appeal is for them not to receive the grace of God in vain. These are the Corinthians, right? They, they've known Paul personally. He's had lunch with them. He's written them letters. These letters are not short, the two we have in the Bible, let alone any others he may have written. They had access to one of the greatest theologians of all time. And Paul's worried because he's saying, have I wasted my time with you? We've got to listen to these words and ask ourselves a few questions because how long have we been attending church for? A day? A month, a year, 10 years, 100 years. It, it may have been a long time or a very short time. And let's face the facts. In Australia, we are very lucky to have great opportunities, wonderful options of churches to go to, faithful teaching, faithful application of God's word. We learn to read and write ourselves from a very young age as part of our lifestyle in the country, which means that we can pick up a Bible for ourselves and read it. Okay, And it's not impossible. We can read the words there might be confusing. We have resources. We can buy books to help us understand it. We can search Google on our phone. Most of, the, most of us can do that and try and seek understanding there. Okay, There's, there's useful stuff everywhere to help us. Try, there's huge privileges that we have. But yet, even with all these resources available, it is possible for people in Australia today to, as Paul warns, receive the grace of God in vain. That is, to not really respond to the good news of Jesus with commitment in life. And Paul is saying that has disastrous consequences. He says it's possible to give intellectual assent. Yes, I believe it's true. But not to let it impact you at a practical level. And how do we avoid this? Well, Paul says in verse 2, he says, he he quotes here Isaiah, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's a quote from Isaiah 49, a prophecy about Jesus. And uh, it's, a, it's about the day of salvation. And Paul's saying that day is now here. 700 years ago, Isaiah prophesied. And he's saying now is the time that Isaiah was saying to pay attention to. And we, now to, we need to listen up to what God is saying because God has said this will be the time. And his call to the Corinthians is to respond, to, to listen to God and to respond to God not to listen to voices outside of God. And the Corinthians, they keep saying, well, it's all very well for God to say that. But what does our society say? Because we're so enlightened. What's the choice here? God or society? Now, if you were to take a stroll along the River Loire in France, does anyone know what you might see? A sunken castle. Funny you should say that. Yes, so you might see that. How do you know that, Karen? Um, a house. A house sitting in the river. And you might think that's a bit of a disaster. Um, however, this is not a disaster story. This is a work of art. It is actually an artwork put there by a French artist. Surprisingly, his first name is Jean-Luc, because uh, he's French. Um, is that right, Tom? Every second Frenchman has Jean-Luc as his name. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, he, he put it there as a work of art inspired by the river because apparently the River Loire has a bit of a history of um, shipwrecks and disasters on the river. And so this work of art was meant to symbolize 
the shipwrecks and disasters that have happened on that river and in its tributaries over the centuries. Now, I heard about this and I learnt uh, that this artwork was actually paid for by a company that specialises in salvaging wrecks from that very river. And it got me thinking, what was their motive for paying for this artwork to be done, do you think? Do you think it was genuinely because they wanted people to see this work of art, or do you think they would prefer to have spray paint on the side, 0422, whatever, for a salvage, call us? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit too unfair on them, but I just thought, I wonder what their motive is. Is it purely for the sake of the art, for the passers-by, or is there something in it for themselves? I don't know. What I do know is that in Corinthians, Paul's motives and the motives of his opponent are clearly contrasted. They are all about the Albert show, gathering, uh, following for themselves, making a name for themselves, putting on a good show, making an appearance, and they want the Corinthians to follow that path. Disastrous consequences. And Paul says that's not him. He's, he lays his motives out for us. He just wants them to be saved. He doesn't care about the glory. To God be the glory, says Paul. And so he goes on in verse 3 to say he put no obstacles in their way. And then in verses 4 through 10, he describes the way that he carried himself. What do the glory seekers want? Paul says, let them have the whole world. It's not important. But Corinthians, why don't you see the big picture? Why can't you see? Why can't you see what's going on? And so he says to them, you know, as servants of God, we commend ourselves. They had tough times, all right? Um, But they were patient. They were filled with the spirit and love. They spoke the truth. They were treated as imposters, but they were true. They were treated as unknown, yet well-known. And he goes on and on and on. See, Paul then concludes that in verse 11, saying, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. It's a, it's a beautiful little um, sentence. Paul's saying, I haven't hurt you with what I've been trying to do to you, Corinthians. I've spoken truth out of love but you're holding yourself back. You're holding yourself back. All he wants to do is present God's words to them and see them respond the right way. And by cutting themselves off from God and his words, they are withholding themselves from the best way of life, God's way. I wonder if you thought about churches today and you ask yourself, what makes a church really successful in today's world? I wonder what would go through our heads as we say that. How would you tell? What would it be? Would it be, where would you start your investigations? Would you go to the biggest church you could find and go, well, let's have a look and see what makes them successful? Uh, Would you maybe go on the websites of churches and look through the programs that they have? I wonder what programs these churches are offering, because maybe that's what's making them successful. Or maybe you might tune in to their live streams and check out their music I think for what it's worth, all the live stream music doesn't sound as good as it probably does in person because it's coming through a speaker, but there you go. Um, or, or would you look to the, see the people up the front and see how cringeworthy they are? You know, everyone is cringeworthy in churches. It's just how much, right? Um, you know, how, how good can they get their presentation? How slick can they be? Those might be all good things to consider. But maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're like, no, those things are all evil. It's, I, I, I look at the smallest church first uh, with the most cringeworthy person and no programs. Well, Fine. I think both of those extremes are missing the point, aren't they? The Corinthians are putting their hopes in those kind of things, all right? And we can make the same mistake today. The foundation is what? It must be the word of God, the eternal truth of the good news of Jesus. We just spelt it out before. We had some amazing drawings this morning. 
And we have some slightly more amazing ones that we've been doing over the last few weeks. All right, the, the good news of the kingdom. That's what church must be all about. The good news, two ways to live, with God or without. All right, And we want to implore people like Paul, hear the good news, be in God's kingdom. The Corinthians are hearing it, but it doesn't change their lifestyle. They don't want to change. They want to focus on what is external, the trappings, and they want to resist what should be happening inside. And I reckon we've got to be careful today because we can face the same sort of temptation. We can think it's all about what it looks like on the outside. Um, and I don't really want to change my life. We can hear the word of God and go, well, I hear it, but I don't like it. You ever thought that? If you say no, you're probably lying. Right? We've all read the Bible and thought, I don't like that. I'll read it and it, it doesn't sit well with me. What do we do when we hear that? Because it might be worth asking ourselves, am I the one who is misunderstanding? Maybe I'm reading it the wrong way. All right? With all my education that I have, maybe I'm just reading it the wrong way. I can read and write for myself. I can look things up on the internet. But maybe I'm just still misunderstanding what's going on here. Or we might think, you know, it doesn't mesh with my view of the world. Perhaps my view of the world could be better shaped. Instead of trying to cram the Bible into that, I should say, well, how should it make me think about my worldview. Some people say, I'll just make it mean whatever I want. It says this, but I'll make it mean that. I call that exegetical gymnastics, right? That people take something and if you stand on your head in the corner and squint your eye just right, you can drop this word and it makes it mean something different. But what if, what if God actually has a good plan for the world? Of course he does. We can trust him. He made the world. He made us. He knows what's good for us. He knows how we should live in the world. It might be we're in growth group or in church or somewhere and we hear something and we think, I'm not sure. I don't know if I like that. Why do we arrogantly assume that we know best? Now, of course, people get things wrong. There's a caveat there, of course. But I think if you were to go and pick some random church somewhere in Sydney, all right, it's unlikely that they are wrong all the time in their growth groups or from the pulpit or or if you have a Bible study reading guide that you're working through at home, it's unlikely that it's wrong all the time, okay? If you're always thinking it's wrong, ask someone to check it for you, because it might be, and then you should put it in the bin, all right? But it's very possible that people in those positions have an understanding of the word and what it means in their lives and in our lives, all right? And so maybe if what they are saying grinds with our own understanding, maybe we should go back and check our lifestyles first. Be, be humble. Test the word. Is there something I could change? Is there a difference I could make? Back in 1904 at the St. Louis World Fair, it was a hot day and people were looking for something to cool down. What would you naturally buy at a fair on a hot day to cool down? Ice cream. Ice cream. That's right. Well done, Tom. Half there, Benita. Um, that's the only thing you'll buy. And so people queued up at the ice cream stall and the man was putting the ice cream in the bowls and giving it to people. And guess what happened? He ran out of bowls. And this lady got to the front of the queue and he said, I'm really sorry, we've run out of bowls. So this clever lass, seeing the waffle maker next door, bought a waffle, rolled it up and said, put my ice cream in there because it's a hot day and I do need my ice cream. And so a beautiful relationship was formed. The waffle cone and the ice cream. Some things just work well together, don't they? If someone was to give you a box of those things I just spoke about, the cones, all right? What would you say they were giving you? Ice cream cones. That's what I would say. Technically, they're waffle cones because they're not ice cream cones until they have the ice cream in them, are they? 
But we think of them so naturally as cones for ice cream. It's just, that's the combination. It's natural. Other things in life shouldn't go together, not ever. For example, I should have really done an example of this for you, but um, brush your teeth, all right? That might take a bit long, three minutes, just watching someone there. So we won't do an example now. But brush your teeth, all right? And then drink a glass of orange juice. Has anyone ever done that in life? I've done it. I did it once. No, I think I did it twice as a child. The first time I thought this orange juice is off. The second time I twigged. It doesn't go so well with toothpaste, does it? Have you ever done it? Yeah. How does it taste, Mara? It just tastes revolting. It doesn't taste a thing like orange juice combined with toothpaste. It tastes like nothing that should ever be tasted ever again. Verses 14 and onward. Paul is talking about being unequally yoked. Okay? He is saying there are some things that don't go together. And he says, believers and unbelievers, they don't go together. They don't work together. Okay? Um, what do you think, who do you think his main point of reference is here? Who's his target when he's talking to them? The Corinthians, something about them. Yeah, who, who, which people? Someone in their church? The teachers who are saying it's all about self-glorification. He is describing them in fairly blunt terms as unbelievers here, all right? And he's saying that this is not who you should be yoked with, all right? You let them come in and teach in your church and why, says Paul, because he's just presented his resume and he's saying, in contrast, what are they all about? They're all about themselves. And so he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Now, you might be wondering what or who Belial is. Has anyone got a pew Bible there? One of the church Bibles? Yeah, have a look at the bottom. There's a little number two down the bottom and it, it, it really helpfully explains that for us. What does it say? Yeah, so instead of Belial, it says Belial. It puts an R on the end of an L. Well, that makes it much clearer, doesn't it? Isn't that helpful? I would have thought they might explain it. But it, it the word referring to idols and the things of idols. And so he's trying to say to them, you know, don't have, um, well, Jesus and idols don't go together. It, it makes sense as you read on because he sort of repeats everything back again. So what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You look at the contrast here and what he's trying to say is that if you're not fully committed to the cause of Christ, these people are not in the kingdom. Don't listen to them anymore. It's harsh language he's using. But what does it look like to have no association, the general principle, believers and unbelievers? What would it actually look like in practice? Because over the years, people have thought this through and acted it out in many different ways. There's the monastic movement in, uh, which, which began, and the idea was that we don't want to be associated, believers and unbelievers, so we will remove ourselves and start our own little communes in the desert, okay, or on a mountaintop, or wherever, in a warehouse, in a city, and we won't have contact with non-believers. Some people today uh, will only shop at uh, businesses that are owned by Christians because they're saying we can't have contact with unbelievers, I want to put it to you that I think maybe they're mistaking what's going on here. But that's the other end of the spectrum of the mistake is the person who says, well, hang on, you've got to be so relevant to unbelievers that you've got to do everything they do. And so you hear about the high profile people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And you see them going to the strip clubs and getting drunk with their mates. And you think, what's going on there? It's easy caricatures. But what does it actually look like? In the Old Testament, God says to the people, be holy because I am holy, all right? And so for the nation of Israel, that meant they were to separate from the world and adhere to God. And yet, 
have relevance to the world they lived in. We come forward to Jesus, and it's the same thing, right? We're to follow him, but Paul says we're to be his ambassadors to the world. So we've got to let God change us and show our commitment to him while still being relevant to those around us. So that might mean, I'll just a couple of examples for you. Um, the first one you think about is syncretism, right? Which means you worship God and you say, I'm going to worship something else as well. That's the Corinthians issue. They're taking on the um, worship of fame in their society. Easy for us to take on the worship of fame or money or whatever possessions in our society and try and live the same way as everyone else. But we've got to think differently, don't we? Um, and, you know, over the centuries for Israel, they had the issue of syncretism, worshiping idols. I'm going to suggest that's going to be a problem for humanity, that that's going to be a challenge to, to work out. Um, Paul's also appealing to them financially here. Um, as we read on the next few chapters, he's going to be, you're going to get a bit of Jerry Maguire going through your head, show me the money. Okay, that's what Paul's going to get to in chapter eight-ish. Um, he's, he wants them to actually support Christian ministry, not these fame seekers. So he's saying, don't give them your cash, okay? Put it towards a good cause here. Um, that's to, he's also um, thinking about uh, their relationships. Who are they actually in close contact with in their lives, all right? Who are they in close contact with? And so we've got to think about the possible parts of this, and we've got to think about who do we interact with on a daily basis, um, and how much are we influenced by them, or how much of an influence on them are we, all right? Uh, maybe we could think in a positive way about the people that we go to church with, and we could think about, well, actually, this is our forever family, right? I mean, you look around Christians and you think, we're going to have eternity together, all right? So how do we work on our relationships now? And sometimes you go to some churches, right? And um, it's a bit rare, but in some churches, there are some people who are a bit awkward. Can you believe that? <laughs> no. Oh, no. It was the case in Corinth. Can you believe that? Um, Paul says to them, you know, I chose the foolish things of the world. Oh, God says, I chose the foolish things to shame the wise, the things that are not to render ineffective the things that are. And the brutal truth, friends, is that that's us, right? I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I'm looking at everyone. All right. um, we are not the most significant people in the world. I'm sorry if you thought you were. You, you're not. I'm afraid to say it. Um, but also, you don't have to be the most glorious person to be relevant in God's sight, okay? And you go to any church, and the beautiful thing is that there are people there who are not accepted by society, Okay? They're not accepted by the general society. Um, and yet they're accepted by God because they put their faith in Jesus. And people from a wide range of backgrounds come together. In our church, it's the same. People who wouldn't necessarily rub shoulders come to churches. And they do. And they can talk together. And I just want to encourage you to think about those who aren't like you in your church family. It's a part of the process of becoming more like Christ to think, who is not like me? Who do I see all the time? Who do I always hang out with? It's good, but how do I actually intentionally hang out with some other people or actually intentionally invest in them? It can become so easy to go into our safe zones. And this is probably part of the danger here that he's saying, believers and unbelievers, right? It's so easy to say, well, we've got our church family and some of the people there are awkward and these people are much more cool. They have lots of money and big houses and they don't believe in Jesus, but I'll spend more time with them than these people. All right, well... Think about why you're thinking that way. All very well to try and share the good news, but sometimes there are people who are nothing in the world's sight that God loves and cares for. Invest in your forever family. 
I should have been looking up at the um, top there when I was saying all that bit, shouldn't I? Just so no one's, if anyone's going to come up to me after and say, were you talking about me? No, I wasn't. It's okay. Uh, definitely not. Um, uh, you can do a little experiment at home if you like. You can get a glass of water and pour some oil in there. And voila, what will happen at the end? The oil and the water won't mix, all right? That is the basic point that Paul is making here. You know what happens in the end for believers and unbelievers? Does anyone know? It's a serious question, not rhetorical. What happens? Okay, we'll have to start again here from the beginning. All right, so God made the world. All right. We haven't done the final box, but I hope we know the answer. They're separated. How? Not everyone goes to heaven, only those who put their trust in Jesus. Yes, it's open to everyone, but if people refuse it, they choose their own path. There will be separation. And God is saying to us here in Corinthians that we need to focus on the end game here. Don't get carried away and try and turn your oil into water or the other way around, depending on what you prefer. Don't be carried away by that because the Corinthians desire to stand out. It all comes to nothing. In Sydney, we have this desire to have it all now. It's all going to come to nothing. Christ and the glories of the new creation, they will last forever. How committed are we to the cause? You know, sadly, um, you go to a lot of churches and uh, you talk to people and there's some people who are burning hot, so keen, and some are like this bloke here in the background. You've got some players in the court and other members of the team are having a nap on the bench, not at all committed to the cause. Now, John, I'm using this figuratively, not as a joke, but uh, to talk about people's commitment to Christ, so maybe you should sit up again. Um, thank you for lying down just now and drawing my attention to it. But the, it's a disaster. It's a disastrous result in the kingdom. It's okay to lie down on the pew at church. That's fine to listen along. But to lie down as a Christian is not okay. To lie down in your faith and go, it doesn't really matter. I could care less. I'm not even watching what the team is on about. I'm having a nap. Get in the game, people. Be committed to the cause. What is your Christian life going to look like? Because true Christian discipleship is confronted by the word here. Paul lays it on hard to them. What have you got to do with idols, Corinthians? Turn to him. And if we're going to repent, we're going to turn to him. We're going to focus on building relationships, particularly with other Christians and bringing glory to God as we do so. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we do thank you for the love you have for this world, that you call all people to repent and believe. And we thank you so much that we can see those who are not significant in the world's eyes, including us, finding significance in your eyes. Thank you that you love us that way. Help us to extend that love to others who awkward or or difficult to get along with at times in our church families. Help us to love them and go the extra mile. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.